Welcome, everybody, to our time with Jen McIntosh. This is a uh, uh, an opportunity presented or rather sponsored by, you might say, the Catholic Homeschool Network. This is one of many events that are upcoming, and I'll let Paula talk about that here in a moment. But for today's event, we'd like to just welcome you again to today's session. We are going to be spending an hour together. And hello to those folks that are in, uh, on our Facebook page. Welcome to you as well. We will invite everyone, regardless of your location, to go ahead and ask your questions. If it's in the Zoom room, go ahead and ask them in the Q&A area. That will... Um, We'll go ahead and make sure it's accessible to you. It should be there at the bottom of your screen. If you happen to be joining us through Facebook, go ahead and type in your message there. We'll be keeping an eye on that thread as well. And that'll give you an opportunity to also voice your questions for Jen. Uh, it might be a little bit delayed in the conversation, but no worries. Don't worry about that. It's only just a matter of seconds we will go ahead and make sure it gets asked. So without further ado, let me go ahead and turn it over to Paula Siskanik and then um, we, and we will, uh, well, run with it. Go ahead, Paula. <laughs> okay, thanks, Walter. Thanks so much. Thank you. Walter is the guy who put together all the technology for us. Where would we be in that sense? Thank you, Walter. Anyway, um, I am, as Walter said, Paula Siskanik. Welcome, welcome to this live Q&A session, the first, we hope, of many. Um, we're hosting this in our brand new community. Um, this is something that we're super excited about. We are very, very grateful and blessed to have Jen be uh, so gracious as to spend this time with us. Um, the idea of this was, you know, when, when Walter Maureen and I kind of got together, this crazy idea of doing the homeschool conference, which we did in June, it was always um, in our mind, right, from the beginning to be able to um, be able to continue the conversations that were started at that conference. And they were amazing conversations. There was so much in that conference that it, it just was really a beautiful experience for us. We were really, really moved by that experience, so much so that we knew that we needed to find something special. And I think we did, and we hope that you'll join us. We've got over 700 people, getting close to 800 people who have joined us on our Catholic homeschool community. Okay, and this is our own platform. I just wanna say it's a little different um, in the sense that you're going to be able to just turn on what notifications you want. There will be no ads on here. There's no other groups or distractions. This is purely just your place. And we want you to know that you can make it your place. We have started a few topics just to get them going, a few questions. People have already participated and we are just thrilled to see people, those that are veterans, helping out some of the newbies. Uh, especially we started a little group, subgroup called First Year Homeschooling. So I encourage anybody who's a first year homeschooler, join that. A uh, little group. We're going to go in there too periodically to do maybe a Q&A session again. So the other thing that was really big on, I know for Maureen and I, you know, we, we have tons of curriculum through the years. Very often you would buy something and it might just sit on the shelf or you forgot that you even had it. And so again, this is another reason we're, we're trying to bring out, drip out little bit by bit, some of the talks that you heard in the VIP pass. And so Jen did a beautiful talk on Wonder, and then she also did a talk um, during our Jump Start Your Homeschool event that was held August 6th, and that was on Truth and Beauty. And, and really mostly it was about the morning baskets and being able to teach multi-ages. I'm gonna let Jen, give us a little brief uh, rundown of those two talks. And um, so it's this idea that you can now meet the speaker. You probably had questions. Hopefully some of you got to uh, listen to the talks. I've made them free 
and previewable. They will continue to be that way until tomorrow. So if this is recorded, you have time to listen to the talks and then look at some of these Q and A's. So um, without much further ado, please join us in, if you're on Facebook, come on over to the community, invite your friends, uh, referrals, and uh, we're gonna now turn things over to you, Jen. And as I said, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Good. One of those big questions we had during the June event, I mean, somebody commented and said, you know, Jen, yours was like the first talk I gave, uh, I listened to for wonder, and I could just listen to you and have you come and give a talk every month. Little did you know. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. Here you are. Third month in a row. <laughs> yes, yes. So great. Yeah. Good, good, good. But it's exciting. And the reason I love this is because I've gone to conferences to speak before, um, right? And I love that. This can't replace that personal engagement we get when we get to connect face-to-face. -face. However, when I speak at a conference, I can speak to you. I can even meet you at a table after the talk and we can brainstorm. But I'm not there after you put the rubber to the road and tried to live the morning basket for a couple of weeks. And by then you found the hiccups, you found the problems, you found the challenges, and now you have real questions. Right. And that's why I love this because I get to be here. You've lived it for a little bit. You've thought about the ideas. And now you get to ask me the questions. And having lived it, what about this? Or why is this not working? Well, you said this, but. So let's brainstorm together and see if we can work through some of the challenges you found, both in putting the morning basket in place and also in embracing an idea of wonder, a wonder-filled atmosphere in your home, how foundational that is to homeschooling. It is so foundational that wisdom cannot happen without it. So let's start to brainstorm together and see if we can get some practical ideas that you can put in place and you go back into your homeschools Friday, next week, the next couple of weeks, um, and live this more fully. So Jim, why don't you start us off by kind of just telling me your story. You know, I love always hearing people's, you know, what's my little story, but your story that really you say, I think it was like 14 years ago, uh, mm -hmm. it happened. So go ahead, give us a little brief yeah. uh, idea of what that was like. So, so let's go back a little bit further even. Um, let's go back to when I was in high school, and that was a really long time ago. Um, <laughs> my mom pulled my brother and sister out of school at the time. My brother and sister, super intelligent people, uh, and really were showing signs of that as young people. And homeschooling at the time, we're talking the mid-80s, it's pioneering, at this point, barely legal. Uh, and so what she did really was lay the groundwork for me and for you. My mom did that, and I learned so much from the peripheral of that experience. I had no idea how much I picked up on until we fast forward several years, and I have my own children. And I talked to my husband. In fact, before we got married, it was one of those sort of, you should know this, we're going to be homeschooling, okay? So, so generous man that he is, he, he agreed to be open to the idea and God's grace, and here we are. So now let's talk about homeschooling. I was homeschooling and I had been homeschooling my daughter for several years, my oldest daughter, and another son had come along and another son had come along. And at this point, my daughter was old enough that she really needed to stretch out in some independent areas. And I saw that, but I was really hesitant to let go that beautiful, rich time we all just shared together. We all read together. The boys just listened in as, as I read aloud to Sarah or we did things together. Um, and I did not want to let that go. And that was my, vote, my motivation for the morning basket. It was as simple as that. I wanted to continue to anchor our days in this beautiful, rich way. I wanted to continue to nurture relationships with all my kids. And I also wanted to facilitate the necessary independent learning that happens with older children. So I literally, and this is as over, overthinking as it gets, I just grabbed a basket. I picked up some of my favorite books that I thought were really beautiful that would be able to, I'd be able to share with all the kids, all the ages I had. I put them in the basket. I decided I would read to everyone in the morning before school started, and that is how the morning basket started. What I didn't realize at the time was the beautiful fruit that would come Mm -hmm. Many, many years into living the morning basket, the beautiful, rich fruit that comes from reading aloud to all your children from rich living books full of true, good, and beautiful ideas, sharing those ideas, allowing the children to share together, learning the value of respecting other opinions, learning the value of not interrupting another when someone else is talking, 
listening to mom share, looking at beautiful art, listening to beautiful music, all of those things done just a little at a time every day actually build up. This is a marathon, right? Slow and steady wins the race. It really builds into a rich atmosphere of homeschool life. So one of the things that I, I, key question, I know you get it all the time, I do too, was, and you started to bring that up, was this idea that you wanted to gather everybody around. And and I'm sure as the kids grew, you know, you had this big gap. And I know I took a little note down, you said your biggest gap was 17 years. Whoa. So how do you even know, like you said, I picked up books that I knew we all would appreciate. So that's kind of where I'm like thinking, how, how do you know that? Like, how, how do you even pick those? And how do you know that? How does the mom right. trust herself with that? That's, that's a really good, great question. I'm not sure I entirely trusted myself. <laughs> Fortunately, if I go back to my mom's example, my mom pioneered the Charlotte Mason Mm-hmm. method of education, which is very classical. It's founded on this principal idea that children are very capable of grappling with big ideas. And they grapple with those ideas, not because I feed it to them, but because I hand them a book, a beautiful living book, a classic. And from that book, they read and they take from that book what they need. And then they can narrate, tell me back that book. So I took those ideas Um, that I was formed with, that I was already starting to implement in my very early days of homeschooling, and I used that as my basis. So if you're looking for books um, that you know will be a good fit, you're looking for classics. You're looking for the good books. We're going to talk about wonder in a minute um, and how we're really working towards building these children, nurturing them so that they can encounter and engage the, co- the great conversation, you know, great books, great ideas. You have to start somewhere. You must build with the good before you can get to the great. So you're looking for the good books, right? right. Mother Goose, Beatrix Potter, um, Margaret Wise Brown. These are beautiful authors that write well, well-written, not potato chip, twaddly kind of material, mm-hmm. but well-written material, beautifully illustrated. You choose the best. Yeah, that's awesome. Great. So the classics, great way to start. That's wonderful. Well, Jen, we already have our first question from okay. Ashley. She'd love to know some ideas for helping the oldest child transition to learning at home. They may prefer to play with the younger siblings instead. How would you? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually great. I think that play should be a very, mu- very much a part of that transition, actually. Um, children are hardwired to play. If we go back centuries and centuries and centuries and we look at the early roots of education, guess what it was? It was play. It was play. They learned all their social skills through play. They learned all of their skills to deal with life through play. So I would first encourage you to let the child play. Um, and part of that means really carving lots of marking your day, lots of time for that free exploration, that playtime, um, time to read, time for them to do, follow their own passions and pursuits. And I would start very, very gently with structure, very gentle structure at first. Um, so you might sit down and read for or require just maybe an hour or so of school. And I'm, I'm kind of talking in the dark. Maybe this is a second grader. And if that's a second grader, then um, I would say that you let the child play and you read aloud a little each day. And then each day you grow those, those academic muscles a little bit more with a little bit more time. So you begin to fill it so that there is the, the academic rigor that's required of that particular, your particular child's age, that, that student's age. Um, but you are always, always leaving time for play, for exploration, for free time, for that child to pursue ideas. Because while we can share the academic ideas in part of the day, They don't really get it until they spend time with those Mm -hmm. ideas and playing with them and turning them over. If you watch your kids outside with sticks or rocks or whatever, they're building forts that they read about in school. That's when those ideas are cemented. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things you talked about, which again, uh, this kind of leads into uh, that wonder conversation, you know, because I I know you were very much um, influenced by a talk that you had heard when you Mm -hmm. went to conference and you were introduced into this whole concept. So maybe you talk about that. And I really relating that as well to, okay, that's all well and good, Jen, but you know, I have my curriculum and it's got a long list of things I'm supposed to do. What do I actually pull out of the curriculum in order to let my kids play? Right, right, right. It's a really good question. Um, (laughs) One could could put me in the hot seat. Um, Okay, so let's talk about wonder a little bit and this idea. It was not foreign to me when I 
first met Father Jackson, which was my first really big face-to-face -face encounter with someone who was directly influenced by Dr. Senior. Dr. John Senior is actually a, a kind of a big name in Catholic circles. If you have not heard of him, I really encourage you to go look at some of his books, do a quick Google search. You'll find a lot of really beautiful testimonies. He is a Catholic man who taught the University of Kansas in the 1970s. Okay, we're just coming out of hippiedom, 1970s, secular institution. Wow. He is teaching the classics as a Catholic, as a very traditional Catholic man. Um, and so I think we can take some really great, um, I think we can pull some examples from him in that he managed, if you, if, if you Google search Dr. John Sr. and the Integrated Humanities Program, you will find enormous fruit from this program who could not mention Catholic faith, Catholic doctrine, Catholic truth. They wow. could only talk to universal truth within that secular framework. Um, you'll find bishops, archbishops, you'll find an abbey, an entire abbey, monks, um, all from this program. Dr. Jackson is one of those people. And I met him, it was several years ago, it was a conference in Denver, Colorado. And, um, and he began speaking. Uh, he's a very powerful commanding presence when he speaks. And he was there in front of all of us. And he said, you know, he walks into this program and his cut off jean shorts and like a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Dr. Senior, Frank Neelick and Dennis Quinn, the three men responsible for the integrated humanities program, sat him down, sat all these, you know, brilliant in their own minds, stood us down and began to talk to them or talk to each other, actually, very Socratic. They talked to each other, these professors, about how much these kids didn't know. So there's a process, really, towards wonder, right? There's a very natural process. In order to wonder, we have to be humble. If we don't have a sense of humility, and Father Jackson would probably tell you that he did not when he walked into that program, if you don't have a sense of humility, if you don't have an awareness of your smallness within God's creation, then you need that. And those professors understood it. And their entire program was built around showing these students how small they were within creation, within the framework of God's creation, and then opening the doors wide to truth, goodness, and beauty within the scope of this, this, this program. Um, I mentioned the talk that, that Dr. Senior talks about how they, the person knew these students were not ready to grapple with Shakespeare. They could not possibly. They knew far too much, right? They needed the rhymes of Mother Goose. This goes back to that principle I talked about, good to great. We have to nurture imaginations on the good. Beatrix Potter, Mother Goose, before they're ready to encounter the poetry of the Bible or Shakespeare himself. So these were some of the ideas that I, that I encountered with Dr. Jackson. And he really illuminated my mind when it came to um, the idea of wonder. But shortly on the heels of that, um, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand wrote a book, um, her memoirs, and she talks again, she <laughs> echoes the same ideas about teaching in a secular institution. And yet right. here is a very strong Catholic philosopher, and she manages to affect conversions, not by overt Catholic um, dialogue, but by speaking to truth with a capital T, truth. Yeah. Uh, so I think that we as homeschool moms, school, homeschool parents can take, can draw a lot of inspiration from those sources if we incorporate things that are true, good, and beautiful. And I am not by any means saying ditch your religion curriculum. That's actually essential. It's right. needed. Right. I am saying that you can really anchor your education to those three big ideas, truth, goodness, and beauty. Yeah, beautiful. Well, you know, part of this little Q&A session is, is this ability to, to dive deeper. And so, you know, thank you, Jen, because, you know, we were sort of, you know, I was, I, I heard all of that in your talk and you were just getting the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding wonder. And I think as mothers, we intuitively can see those moments. And again, you articulate the moment where you watched your children outside and you said, mm, I have a choice. What yep. do I yes. do? So does, is that something you're thinking about? Do you make deliberate choices in your curriculum based on that? Like where do you yes. put in the, the space? Do you deliberately have blocks of, of time where you're, you're really not planning any activities or giving them time for discovery wonder? 
I do. Um, I do. And, but I've been doing this for 21 years. So there's a little bit of um, experience that goes along with my understanding of how to plan and make sure that there's margin in the day. When I was younger, I would watch the kids and I would watch for signs and symptoms that they were completely overwhelmed. You can look at them. Um, well, let's just use this analogy. Let's let at, like they're a plant. Um, a, a, when a plant is de deprived of sunlight and water, it's very wilty. It's lifeless. It's lethargic. You know, <laughs> your kids are whiny. Um, and also a plant can be very overwhelmed, right? It can be burned by the sunlight scorched because there's just been too much, too much water. You've drowned it. Um, and so, Watch your kids for signs that there's too much or too little going on. Um, we're moms and we have the graces from the sacrament marriage, so lean hard into that. You know when your kids are overwhelmed when there's too much, dial some things back. Um, and you know when there's not enough and they're, they're bored and they're acting out. So you can add in some rich material if that's the case. Definitely need that time for wonder, that margin in the day, because as I alluded to before, really that's where, that's actually where education takes place. When they have those moments to think and go over in their minds what they read about, and they can actually put that into place, that's application, it cements that knowledge. So those times are really, really important. If you're looking for places to pull, um, Okay. If you're looking for places to pull, um, I, I, I would ditch workbooks in a New York minute. They're a really inefficient way to convey an education. And they're a really, now I know moms of many who need the help of the workbook to get through the day. Got several children under the age of 12 and you need some tools. And that's absolutely fine, especially if you feel like you are able to convey an education through those tools that you have at your fingertips. But there's still plenty of time for your kids to go outside and play. So I'm talking to the mom who's feeling overwhelmed because she mm -hmm. has multiple kids, way too much on her plate, a different curriculum for a different subject for a different child, and there's just so much going on. The morning basket is where you can pull some of those things out of each individual student's day, drop it in a basket, read to all the kids, and you're back, it's basically two birds with one stone. You're, you're really making efficient use of time um, while sharing these big, beautiful ideas. So, yeah, let's talk about that. You know, you're a first-time homeschooler. Now, I know especially this year, we, we have so yes. many beautiful families who either one was, you know, they've been thrust into homeschooling without a choice, obviously. But right, then right. it kind of just gave them the little nudge to say, you know, this was... I saw some beautiful fruits from this. I really want to yes. do this. But it is really, you know, Jen, we, we've been through that first year experience. What kind of advice would you give those first year moms, you know, uh, in terms of just really being able to incorporate a morning basket? Uh, go ahead. I would say read aloud richly. That's your priority. Um, read aloud richly. If you stop right there, moms, if you stop right there and left this talk with nothing else, you'd be doing great. You'd have a beautiful year. Read aloud richly from good books that delight. Mm -hmm. um, I would say less is more. I would say, please don't overspend your budget on curriculum. <laughs> yes. Invest in some really good books to build your home library. That kind of thing will never go out of style. You'll be able to hand that on to your children and your grandchildren. Um, and then stick to the basics. If you're really nervous um, and you're not sure where to drop your, your money, your, your, your dollar investments or your time investments, focus on those really good books. There's some fantastic book lists out there. Um, yeah. You can Google the 1000 good books list is one that I like to recommend to people when they when I'm on my, on my blog writing. Um, and so if you just looked at that one list, you could, it's broken down by age and grade. You can find all the resources you need to read richly to your students. Add in a little math. Don't have it be so much math that it topples your entire day that it, you know, you don't want to lose perspective here. Some math, if your students are of an age, then they could be writing a little as well. Mm -hmm. um, but keep it gentle. Keep it gentle. If we go way, way, way back and look at the oldest curriculum on the planet, we're going to look at the Greeks and the Greek paideia. Um, and those schools were built on really good books and discussion, dialogue. And that's how we got Aristotle. So, you know, if Aristotle can educate himself on good books and really rich conversations and dialogue, then we can do that with our children as well. We can take some comfort in that. We can let go of some of the, the guilt as we look around at all the very bright, yes. shiny whiz bangs that are out there in catalogs yes. today. Um, and we can just keep it really simple.
Yeah, that's that kind of alludes to that whole idea of holes in your curriculum. That's one of those other big, huge things. People are going to say, but I'm going to ruin my kids for life because there are some really huge holes. You know, how, how do you address that in terms of, uh, you know, missing chunks of yeah. your curriculum? Yeah. So the question is, um, can you convey an education without holes? Where can I find that curriculum? It doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Every single education has holes because we are made to know and we are finite creatures and we cannot know everything, right? So there is no curriculum or scope and sequence that you can buy into that's going to give your students from K through 12 every possible thing that that K through 12 student will need to know. Your education is going to have holes. And that's not the goal of education to begin with. The goal of education is wisdom rooted in virtue, right? These students have to be able to make virtuous, virtuous decisions. Um, so in order to do that, um, I'm sorry, Paula, I totally lost my train of thought. No, no, you were, we were talking about holes and how nothing really being, yes. yeah. Yes, yes, so, so really the goal is to equip these students with the tools to be self-educators, right? So my middle school students should know how to, and we have filters on our computer so that searches are safe. My middle school students should know how to research and find out answers on their own using the internet, using books that we have in our home library. My high school students, a little wider, a little deeper. I want those students to be able to encounter questions um, and I want them to be able to encounter questions with me present that I don't know the answer to, and they don't know the answer to, and I don't want them to be afraid of that moment. I want them to know they can look. They have the tools to look that up. They have the tools to grapple with those ideas. Some of those answers may be um, really difficult to grapple with, especially if we're talking about political climate and what is true, what's fake news, what is this. And so those bigger students need the ability to think logically with virtue, right reason, wisdom rooted in virtue. And so the goal of education is to equip our students to be self-educators, not to have a wholeless education. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people tend to look at education as, you know, just something to hand down from authority versus really that unfolding of discovery and that you spoke so well of. Exactly. So what, when we talk about discovery, um, so for example, you said um, you want them to ask questions, you know, um, when that happens, you know, are these moments that you actually would get everybody involved or just the kids involved? I, I mean, I, I can think personally for a time where, you know, my daughter just wanted to know everything about monkeys. And, and, <laughs> and so I really did deliberately cut out the rest of that science textbook because we went through the training, you know, to, and, and to right. this day, she's a biologist, you know, graduated from that. So, you know, how have you seen some of that inquisitiveness play itself out with your children through the years? I really like to allow that to happen really organically in the home. So I don't say, oh, children, gather around. Let's have a teaching moment here. I'm going to get on the internet and we're going to find out about <laughs> physics here. Because yes. if we're going to talk about kids, here's my almost 20-year-old who's an engineering student, always wanted to know how something worked, why it worked the way that it did. He had to take it apart, break it down. And so we were always looking at things. My kids, and I think the children who uh, grow up with a sense of wonder that's nurtured are very naturally inquisitive. And so my kids would just naturally gather around and listen, uh, particularly if there's an interest, if it's, if it's just really naturally interesting. I never required it. Um, now, there may be a question on a, a, a larger lesson, a lesson at large, maybe something from the morning basket, maybe it's something about a particular artist um, and the history of his life. And maybe somebody asked me a question, I don't know the answer, then I might look that up and present it as part of the lesson the next time we all meet together again. And that would be an, an example of when all the kids are together and I'm delivering the answer because someone asked it and they all heard. Typically, if somebody wants to go deeper uh, and research and I'm there to help facilitate that or guide, be alongside, um, I'm with that student and we're doing it together. The kids are often around in the peripheral. Right, right. So um, do you have a separate space that you do different activities? Um, you know, is the morning basket a, a separate place or, you know, have you seen people do it in different ways? No, I mean, there's no limit. You could go outside and do the morning basket. Mm -hmm. You can do the morning basket in the car if you want to get some books on uh, audio. 
we typically gravitate towards the living room. That's where the couches are. We have several couches, several chairs for all the family to sit down. Everyone is comfortable. Uh, I did that initially because I had little people and they were underfoot and they needed a place to play with blocks while I was reading aloud with the kids. So it was very practically grounded, that decision. Um, and now it just ends up being the most comfortable place in the house. It's the place we all kind of spring from. And then the kids go out to different corners to do their independent work or meet with someone else. You could do this around the kitchen table. You could do it on the front porch swing, you, anywhere you want to do the morning basket. Yeah. One of the questions I know we had gotten previously was the time of day. You know, we call it a morning basket. What right. about, yeah. Doesn't Absolutely. Matter. I mean, there have certainly been years. If you come to me several years ago and I have a toddler who's very disruptive in the morning, but who's taking a nap after lunch, then you will find Jen doing a tea time basket. It's after lunch reading. Yes. Just because I started and, and called it a morning, a, bas- a morning basket, a basket of reading that happens in the morning, please don't feel locked in by that. It's a vehicle. It's a container for beautiful books. Um, so you could just call it a reading basket. You can call it common time, morning time. It has lots of different names. The idea is very universal and that you are reading aloud richly to all of your children. And so one of the things you're also alluding to is the season of life. Seems to me like it was never the same. (laughs) Never, 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 never. Uh, And Mary Claire Green, and forgive me for singling you out, Mary, but Mary Claire is a daughter of one of my dearest friends, dearest local friends here. So I know Mary Claire. And she asked a really wonderful question in the Mighty Networks group. Um, It's kind of under the announcement for this live. And she talks about how she's nude in Morning Basket and she tried it but it's just, it's, the kids are overwhelmed. She's not able to keep their attention. It's an hour long. She has kids from 12 down to eight months old, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I said, that's, that's a lot. My morning basket, and I've got an almost 16-year-old down to a seven-year-old, takes about 20 to 30 minutes in, at, at all, all day with everything. Um, when I had toddlers, and this is what I shared with Mary Claire, if, I had, if it were a season of life that was really intense and I have a lot of little people underfoot, then I'd keep my morning basket really simple. Always, always, always there is a faith component. We're reading from the liturgical year. We are a family. We are anchored to the rhythm of the church. So always there's something from the liturgical year that takes five to 10 minutes to read about, to talk about. Um, And then there's one other thing, other very short thing. Maybe one day it is a picture study of a beautiful Caravaggio painting. Maybe another day we are listening to Bach's pastoral symphonies. Uh, And then another day I'm reading aloud from Little House on the Prairie. But you can see how if each day is just two short things, you can accomplish your morning basket in 15 to 20 minutes, your very shortest morning basket. And typically you can ask that much time from all your kids' ages. And if you're just starting out with morning basket and your kids aren't accustomed to giving you that kind of attention, um, that's kind of the same, that's academic muscle, right? You wouldn't ask them to pick up a 50 pound weight right away, you would give them a five pound weight. So start very small. If you are just starting out and you are asking all of your children to sit around you quietly and listen, right, start very small, yeah. realistic yeah. expectations. So one, there was a question before, I don't want it to go. Um, you had mentioned about how your kids uh, research things on the internet and Casey asked, can you recommend filters to use on your computers? She's had problems with ones before that have failed. Yeah, we actually use something called the circle. It's like a little cube. Um, it's actually made by Disney, believe it or not. Um, you can put that in any search bar and find circle by Disney. Uh, it actually attaches to the router. So everything that's in the house that goes through the internet my laptop, my computer, the iPads, kids' phones, even someone who comes into our home, a guest using our Wi-Fi, everything goes through the circle first and then out. And with the circle, I'm allowed to assign different filters for each of my children. So my seven-year-old filters are very, very minimal. You know, like um, she did not no YouTube for her, um, really no internet at all. She has one show she's allowed to watch and I can get really customized with the things she's allowed to watch. Whereas my 20-year-old needs to be able to access the internet for research for college. However, across the board, there is a filter that wipes out all the, you know, nasty stuff that you don't want to see on any, on any search. So um, I, I recommend the circle. We've really had great experience with it. We've used it for years and years, and it's been really um, a really helpful tool to have in the time of technology. Yes. Yes. Awesome. And it's true because the technology is bringing us together. So, you know, there's this good part to it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is a good, but it ha- does have to be moderated. It does have a big downside. Absolutely. Yeah, it does. Well, it we've does. just got another question from Bonnie here who says, how do you suggest starting with teens who are resistant to something new? 
Right. And that's a tough one. Teens by nature are kind of apathetic, right? They're, yeah, mm -hmm. they're not really, um, they're not going to show you the same kind of enthusiasm with something new that your six-year-old will when you introduce it. Um, and so with a teen, you have to be, first, you've got to work with the grain. Don't be, don't be hypocritical and no need to be sugary, syrupy, sweet. Um, but you can talk to them ahead of time, particularly if I have a teen that's really demonstrating apathy in front of my younger kids, then I'm going to pull that teen aside privately and talk to them about the importance of setting a good example. I understand maybe you're not really excited about reading about Shakespeare, but we're going to do this as a family <laughs> and you have to keep your comments to yourself. And then in terms of introducing something new, kind of take some of those same ideas from Dr. Jackson and Dr. John Sr. and Frank Neelick and Dennis Quinn, who recognize that these 20-year-olds are a lot like your teen and they're, they know everything. They, mm -hmm. they, they have no need to learn anything new. Um, and so part of reaching those students is beginning very, very small with the good, the very small good things, those good things nurture the imagination. And so for a teen that's really resistant, apathetic, really does not want to approach anything new, you have to begin very slowly cultivating the imagination. Um, and so things like that, something like that would be maybe um, an evening once a week where the entire family lay out on the front lawn and look at the stars. Nothing else but looking at the stars. There is pretty much nothing on this planet that will make you aware of your sense of smallness and God's grandeur than looking up at the stars one evening. Um, waltzing, that's something that Dr. John Sr. was really a fan of, uh, young people waltzing together. It allowed for a natural sense of boundaries between the persons. However, it did allow them to engage socially and get to know each other. The music is beautiful. Beautiful music is the brain, so it br brings in a lot of these really beautiful dynamics. Um, so if there's an opportunity, I know this is kind of a crazy time. We can't really get together for dances like we normally would, but right. keep that in mind for the future. Um, really good social engagements. Really, really, really good books. And they are out there that will capture your teen in the first chapter. Uh, I would put in a lot of really good legwork and research to find some really fantastic books. One good book can turn the corner. Great, great. Thanks, Jen. So uh, I have another question from uh, Easter. She says, my children are moderately dyslexic. How do I do a morning basket? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I had a dyslexic, dyslexic child. Um, and it's actually very easy because you, the mom, are doing most of the reading. So they don't have to do a lot. And the things that they would have to do um, really engages them in a way that doesn't, uh, doesn't allow that the cross of dyslexia where they're having to process. Um, it doesn't allow that to come into play. So they can study a painting and they may focus on um, the colors in the painting or the shadows, that kind of thing, and articulate that back to you. But they're not ever, I mean, you could, certainly there is, I could conceive of an idea where you might have them read aloud a little bit during the morning basket. But um, in my memory, I can maybe think of twice that that's happened for me over 14, 15 years. It's almost always me reading aloud to the kids. And that's actually really, really important for them. It really helps build those auditory listening muscles, it helps to build the, the, the power of attention for your students. Um, it forces them to respect you when you are reading, no interrupting. All of the kids must respect each other. It's a really, really nice dynamic when you are doing the reading aloud, when mom is doing the reading aloud and the kids are listening. So I think that dyslexia really would not come into play with the morning basket. It shouldn't. Well, that brings into a question I know um, we had had before in the uh, previous groups was like, well, it is mom led. So what if mom is sick? <laughs> you know, there's a crisis. What do you do in those particular cases? And that has happened as well. I mean, over the years, <laughs> yes. right, we face all these seasons. This is our, this is our vocation. This is our path to heaven. And so they are not, this path is not without share of crosses. Um, so when I get pregnant, I am one of the lucky few that has hyperemesis, which is basically means I'm fed through a central line. And that means mom is on the couch, steadying the weave of the couch. And that's about it. The only thing that I made F to do was read from the morning basket. And I'd have one of my big kids put books in a basket and leave it right next to the couch for me. And I would just read, that's all I did. I just read. And in those cases, again, let the morning basket reflect your season of life. It should not be a burden for you. It should be something that, I mean, it may be a sacrifice, it may be a mortification, but you should still be able to read aloud to your kids. 
So um, I would say, can it work in survival schooling? Actually, it flourishes in survival schooling. Keep it really simple. Just read aloud. So let's get, let's get back to the uh, true, beautiful, and good that you had talked about before. In particular, you know, what I'm hearing from you, Jen, is like, uh, this isn't about STEM-type subjects, okay? This is really about the humanities, which, you know, is foundational to, you know, what we would call the, the core curriculum in many yeah. classical schools. Um, so um, music appreciation, uh, you alluded to art. What about poetry? Things like that. Yes. So can you address that in terms of what do we mean by true, beautiful, good? Okay. And, yes. and let's dive a little bit deeper in that area. Yeah. Okay. So those three ideas are um, foundational ideas, and they actually go all the way back to Aristotle, who's the first person we think has really kind of named them, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And while they had a sense of the divine, the Greeks, um, they uh, they didn't know God as we do, right? They're created in his image, so they have a sense of divine. They don't have the opportunity. They didn't communicate. They didn't have the opportunity of grace like we do as well. Um, so let's take the three ideas. They are attributes of God, all three of them. They have a lot of overlap. I am not a theologian. So, uh, so I'm just going to kind of share with you some of the things that I've learned over the years is in my understanding. And it's going to be very simple because I'm just a simple mom in the trenches. And I take these ideas and I allow them to inform how I'm communicating with my kids during the day, meaning what am I reading? What am I putting where? And when I talk about the morning basket, I really encourage you to keep those three elements in mind, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Peter Kripp, Dr. Peter Kraft says, everything that exists has some truth, some goodness, and some beauty. That's a quote. So let's talk about truth first. It is knowable. It is capital T, objective, knowable understanding. It's sort of, if we think about the uh, truth, goodness, and beauty as mind, hands, and heart, it's the mind element. You can know that this is good. And so uh, to, know good, to know truth, objective truth, we have to have a knowledge of God. And so in this truth, part of the basket. I put everything that has to do with our faith. It's where reading from the liturgical year goes. It's where if I'm going to do a religion class, I've taught from the Baltimore Catechism to all my kids before, right in the morning basket. If I'm going to have a religious component, read a life from the saint, it's going to go right here. And if we're talking about the little compartments of our basket, this is truth. Anything that illuminates the mind in terms of knowledge of God is true. Okay. Beauty. This is a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, is that which being seen pleases. So we can think of beautiful sacred art. We can think of Raphael, Caravaggio, Frau Angelico, all of these beautiful pieces of sacred art. And since I'm a mom that's really busy and I like to be super efficient when I do things, well, then my sacred art, when I teach an art lesson, is also going to reflect the liturgical year because I'm covering two things there. Um, so, so these elements, this, this idea that something is beautiful, when it's seen, it pleases, um, that carries over into uh, music as well. It could be a beautiful piece from Bach, Beethoven, Handel's Messiah during the Easter season. So all of these things fit within that beauty component. There are also beautiful things that we have created. When we make use of God's God-given talent and we create something that is also beautiful. So um, I, I actually put geography in here um, as we study the as we study the planet, study God's creation. It's beautiful. Um, so, but you could also think um, things that you might not normally think of to fit in this category would be like physics, math, geometry. Um, those are mathematical things are very, very beautiful because they are ordered and God is a God of order. So that's beauty. That's our beauty component. And then what is good? It is a true thing that's fulfilling its purpose. It's doing it, what it's supposed to do. Okay. So if we go back to the Bible in Genesis and God saw all things that he had made and they were very good. Everything he made, his entire creation at that moment was good. So I love to put nature study in this section. If we're going back to our categories, that's the study of nature, natural history, the sciences. Um, it could also be biographies, people who are seeking to do good. So, and, you know, if we wanted to read a, um, a biography of a person, George Washington, it might fit in here. So these are 
overarching. And again, they have tons of crossover into each other. They are three attributes of God. And if you are looking for a book and it fits one of those categories, is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? Then it has a place in your read, your common read aloud time. Yeah. So when you have those read aloud times, would you say they spark conversations? I mean, I love to think yes. about it as a time that your children are getting to know your heart, you know, because there's a certain yes. amount of it that you're picking yourself. This is a lot mm-hmm. about mom and getting to yep. know her heart. So yes. what kind of discussions, you know, usually follow up from something like that? I mean, they're really quite rich. When the kids are little, then they, you know, they, they like to pick out little immature things as little kids are wont to do. As the kids get older, and particularly as you have teens with you during that time in the morning basket, the conversations become very, very rich. And those conversations look more like, look less like me teaching and more like me either modeling or asking questions so that I can challenge that student towards truth. If you're asking me a question, well, why do you think? Or what do you think was the, um, it was going on here? What was the purpose of the main character? And I don't pick apart reading. I don't initiate questions in the morning basket. If the kids ask me a question, then it becomes a conversation and a dialogue. Um, So I I have heard the question, do you ask reading comprehension questions after the morning basket so that you know that they picked up on, you know, what you were reading? No, absolutely not, because this is a time of joy and I want it to be joyful. I don't want them to feel like they're going to be quizzed. Having said that, I do sometimes, if I have a young student that's just learning how to narrate or to tell me back what has just been read, I often, and this is one of the things that I learned having lived the morning basket over a number of years, I learned that I could have a group narration and I could have my high school students start to narrate, and then my middle school student, and then my elementary school student, and then my brand new narrator could pick up. And through that modeling, that really great example that my other students gave, I didn't have to teach a thing. The kids just followed the great example of their older siblings. Um, so, so that's what some of the conversations look like. Uh, sometimes if it's a really, really rich conversation between a high school student and myself, we might carry that, that conversation on a little bit later uh, over coffee later on the day. Another day, we might pick something up. I may hand that student a book to read to dig deeper. Um, but yes, definitely. Those older, older students, those conversations are really rich. And those are my paycheck. Those, that's where I kind of, that's where my heart just, yes, yes, this is the right thing. Um, because that's when I have a, an eye into that child's soul. And right. that is priceless. Great. Great. Thanks. We have another question from Allie. Do you do the morning basket? before preparing breakfast. What's an ideal transition from morning basket to school time? She has a seven, four, and one-year-old. Okay, so those are young students. Yeah. Um, I don't really do a whole lot of preparing. I, I literally have our current morning basket sitting bus- behind me. It, it literally is a bunch of books in a basket. Um, use a bag, use whatever you happen to have, stack them on the counter, put them in a bookshelf in the living room, however you want to contain them. But I have them all together. And I kind of have a sense of what I'm going to do each day. I always have my liturgical year books, and I am working on a post that contains all of my favorite resources. So you can use those to pull. But this is basically just an open and go book. I just pull the little tab and go to the day and read about the saint of the day. No planning there. Just read. We discuss. There's always a prayer at the end of the reading that really kind of anchors the children, their thoughts in that particular reading, this saint, this part of the liturgical year. That's always first. And then I just have something else in here. Mondays is always art. Tuesdays is always music. You can certainly decide on any rhythm that you want to follow, but I just keep it very simple and repetitive. So if it's the day for art, I will pull out a picture. I'll read a little bit about the the artist. We'll study the picture together and then put it away. 15 minutes. Transition time. My kids don't need a whole lot of transition time. They're older students and they're used to the rhythm of the day. We've been doing this for years and years and years now. It's just, this is how the day goes for us. If you are looking to set up a routine with the morning basket, first start very, very small. Your kids, seven and four-year-old, your 10-minute morning basket, maybe read a little bit about the saint that they can understand. And one little book, it's a picture book for you. Your kids are so young. Beautiful picture books are out there. Read a picture book aloud to everyone, close it, and done. 
if you want to build in a little transition time, maybe that time between morning basket and formal schoolwork is morning chores. Everyone go make your bed, make sure that everything's tidy, switch clothes through the laundry, 15 minutes, and then we're going to start school. So you can kind of just consider how your day might normally, naturally flow. And you know your kids. Some kids really need some time to burn off, bleed off energy. Other kids will lose focus entirely for the day if you let them outside for 15 minutes. So you know your kids best. Go with what you think is most intuitive, trust your intuition, and start to build very, very gentle rhythms and routines because those will become the rails you run when those kids are 17 and 14 years old. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jen. I was wondering, like, you know, when I, you were talking about it in terms of there's so many things to pick from, would you say that um, intentionally there are things you really want to get to? Like, it, has that directed you? You know, for example, there may be just books that were your favorite or had an impact on you or um, certain artists, you know. Um, would you encourage parents, you know, moms to kind of throw away the lists and just kind of trust and go with your favorites? Is yes. there a problem with yes. that? No, 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 because this is our education as well. I, you, people used to ask, you know, what, what my upper level education was. And if my oldest daughter was in the seventh grade, I would say, I have a seventh grade education. I'm learning <laughs> right along. There's nothing wrong with throwing your favorites in there. And here's the reason why, parents, because if you're passionate about reading the Little House on the Prairie books, because you've, you've always wanted to revisit them, that passion is going to translate as you read aloud to your kids. And that kind of passion is magnetic. The kids will be rooted and grounded in that. All of that is communicated. Um, so yes, definitely go with your favorites, with your passion. If there, is a, if there is a book series that I have, and I've gone back to it twice, once with my older kids and now with my younger kids, it's the Little House on the Prairie books because um, there are so many lessons that are conveyed in those books, um, cultural touchstones, uh, virtue, moments of virtue, um, all of these, the idea of listening, being aware, not having to just constantly be talking. Uh, these are some really great lessons that are come, that come just from reading the books aloud. I don't say, now, did you pay attention to that moment, children? The kids pick up on them. They, they recognize them. That's the value of these really great, living, rich books and reading them aloud. Uh, one of the... Uh suggestions I'd seen before in some of the comments from your previous talks was actually celebrating Catholic culture, but also celebrating your family's culture. Like that might be something yes. to tap into as well. Are there certain things you've kind of, you've, you found as a surprise or nice little side trips you took as you, you did this? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. My husband's family is all Scottish. Um, they like from Scotland a couple of generations ago, and my family is all French Cajun. Um, and so those are definite cultural points within our morning basket. If you have a rich Hispanic heritage, that should be a part of your morning basket because that's something that you give to your kids. We want our children to be rooted richly in their Catholic culture and in the cultural traditions of their family, their history. Um, so definitely those are really essential elements to be included in the morning basket. Yeah. Something else, too, I remember you talking about in your previous was uh, current events. You had a, mm -hmm. a list of current events or places and that, too. Things that you, you intentionally put things that are going on in the world that you want to address before they actually, you know, stumble upon them. Is that a part of your intentions as well? It is. It's not always something that I discuss in the morning basket because current events are typically pretty hot topics and they require a foundational level of maturity, spiritual maturity and academic maturity to be able to grapple with some of those ideas. I do read as part of my like natural uh, routine, my morning routine, I will hit some of the news headlines. Uh, and there are a couple of places that I like to go, the Imaginative Conservative, First Things, Crisis Magazine, they're all online, they're all free. You can actually subscribe to their to their, uh, their stories and the articles will just land right in your email inbox. Um, and I will proof those first. And if I feel like it's something that's touching on a current event that we can talk about in light of our faith, then I actually email those to my high school students or I drop the link. I 
you, you can use Google Cal, I use iCal, any of these calendars where you, um, I have my high school students student subscribe to a current events calendar that I create. I drop the link right in their calendar on the, that whatever the given day is. And then the high school student will go down in the notes section of ca the calendar program and will leave me a, some of their thoughts. Um, they may follow up on the current event. They may research it a little bit more. It's kind of how we, it's, we use technology. Um, to cover current events in a very busy kind of lifestyle of homeschooling. It's every now and then the kids, the younger kids are aware of a current event, the coronavirus is one of them. Um, and so we may discuss things that are happening in, in light of that with the whole group in the morning basket. But those deeper, uh, more mature topics are I share with my high school students only and only after I filter them. They don't, they don't read the news, <laughs> you know, willy nilly. I send them the link to a specific article after I've proved yeah. it. That makes sense. Great. So um, what about um, child-led learning? You know, I've heard that concept before. You know, how much has that come into your morning basket routine as well? Or even just, you know, getting back to that sense of wonder, you know, are there things, do you deliberately, maybe at the beginning of the year, is there, you know, do you ask the kids, you know, what are you interested in learning this yes. year? Does that come into it at all? Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, we could, it could be a Latin heavy year. Uh, if I have a new Latin student, it's Latin is a discipline of a language mm -hmm. to learn. And so I may bring some Latin into the morning basket for everyone in a very light way. It's not, you know, it's not rigorous. It's not super academic. It's light. And it's a way of sort of breaking the ice and helping that student transition into a difficult subject. Um, and then there are subjects the kids are just super, super interested in. Uh, one year they were really, really into physics. And what's that show on Discovery um, about physics? I can Mythbusters. Mm -hmm. um, proof, pre-watch some of those episodes, yes, parents. Yes. Um, yes. How, some of them are perfectly appropriate and the kids really wanted to pursue physics and a physics understanding. And so we incorporated Mythbusters and various um, activities and explorations with our morning basket for that particular year. I do not structure experiments or pursuits or explorations. If the kids want to do something, if they want to model something that they've seen, they'll give me a list and I'll help provide them with activities. But that's just, um, that's one of the areas I chose. That's the line yeah. in the stand. I said, I'll let the kids so, explore on their own. So did you, one of the things, just getting back to it. So really in many ways, you're creating your own curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. So, so I kind of want you to talk a little bit about that in terms of encouraging moms that they could do that. You know, that is a possibility. Or would you say that's not a possibility your first year? I would say that if you are really nervous about this, um, you might need to put the training wheels on and use a curriculum provider. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, moms of many maybe need to keep the training wheels on for a longer time. Um, think, but you can think of a curriculum provider or these prepackaged curriculums as training wheels or, you know, floaties. If you're jumping in the pool, if you put your six-year-old in the pool, your four, they probably have a floaty on. Um, well, you can swim a long distance in floaties, but it's, you're not going to go very far very fast. It's not going to be efficient. It's probably not going to be a pleasant experience. However, if you learn to swim, you can do it. You can free dive. You can swim extraordinary distances. It's much smoother. It's a more enjoyable pursuit. And it's the same with homeschooling. Um, at, I would really, really encourage you at some point to take the floaties off uh, and try it. You can absolutely write your own curriculum. You cannot break your children. Remember, if we go back, if we go back <laughs> to that point I made, if you do nothing else but go loud richly, you will have a beautiful year. I promise you. I promise you. So if we start with that component, read aloud richly, and we just build in from there a little wider, a little deeper each year, you'll end up with a really beautiful year. Um, you know, you're not married to your plans. If you start your year and you find out that your kids are just completely overwhelmed, well, pair back. You're in charge. You can pull a few things off the schedule, mm -hmm. lighten things up. I think that's one of, the, one of the beautiful things about writing your own curriculum that I have really enjoyed. And that is that I am able to meet each of my individual kids right where they are. I have artistic students. I have natural writers. I have STEM kids. I have a dyslexic. I have kids with ADHD. I'm able to meet that particular student, that individual person created in the image of God, right where that student is and gently stretch them forward in, in virtue in their weak areas and really build into their strengths in a way that really allows them to pursue their passions. That kind of thing is an extraordinary gift, both for me 
and the child. Great, great. Well, I got um, another question from Gabriella. This is, um, I think, from Facebook. I have kids from sixth grade all the way down to preschool. Should I divide them into reading picture books to the younger and chapter books to the older kids? No, you should not. Um, <laughs> you should, if you feel like your younger students cannot sit for a short chapter book, you should read picture books to all the kids. I still read some picture books to my high school students. There are some amazing picture books out there. Don't assume that because a picture book is a hardcover with a, a, a jacket and has 14 pages, that it's not appropriate for your high school student. If it is beautiful, if it is well-written, share it with everybody. So you can absolutely build a morning basket on picture books alone for several years. Uh, and it's a really, it's still a very, very rich and beautiful way to convey truth, goodness, and beauty. Beautiful. Talking about that, she, I think, also added here, speaking of Latin, where would it fall under the truth, goodness, or beauty? Hmm. Well, it's very ordered, so I would call it very, I would call it beautiful. It's the language of the church. Um, so I would, I would put it under beauty. Beautiful. <laughs> so I got another comment here from Tina. She says, our current Together Time Basket simply contains these, a short prayer, a story about a saint of the day, a read aloud of a classic book, or a book or two from the Charlotte Mason book list. Our kids are almost 14, 11, 7, 4, and 2. Is that okay? Beautiful. <laughs> Do not change a thing. I didn't, I didn't pick up on any challenges or issues in your, in your question. So if it's not broke, don't fix it. It sounds absolutely beautiful. Perfection. The kids are listening. If you're reading richly, um, then you're doing everything exactly right. It's great. Great. She also, I believe it's you, Tina, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said, yes, every single education has holes. She done, said this before. <laughs> Something I learned after many years of feeling like I was a failure as a home educator. Yeah. Let's, let's, um, we're now at the top of the hour. Um, this has been just such incredible, rich conversation, but yeah, let's just end with that. How, I mean, one of the things I loved about bringing you into this was that idea that so many moms are so hard on themselves. And I love how you bring simple, giving yourself permission to be simple. So yes. give us some, you know, parting words on that, on that thought of simple. I think that moms and homeschoolers, probably women in general, we are really good at overthinking something to death right? Second guessing, second guessing our own education, our capabilities, the way we delivered that lesson, the way our kids responded and over and over again. But from all eternity, God chose you to parent those children. You can leave it right there. He doesn't make mistakes. In his wisdom, he knew that you and your husband would be the two best people to raise those children. Lean hard into those graces because he provides them in abundance. You have the graces of matrimony. Spend some time crying on your husband's shoulder at night, brainstorming together. He can typically cut through things like no one else can and point you back in the right direction. But moms, you have a unique ability and gift, the ability to reach into your children's heart into their soul and deliver them these beautiful ideas. You have the unique ability to offer them an, educated, an education that is rooted in wonder, an ability to wonder aloud at God's beauty, his magnificence, my smallness. Nothing in the world can take the place of those moments. Trust that God will provide you the graces, lean into them, make the mistakes because there are going to be a lot of them. Make the mistakes and then get up tomorrow and try again. Try, try again. I make my kids memorize that poem at the beginning of first year, first grade every year. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Well, you are one of those beautiful souls. Thank you. Thank you. Your gifts, your, your joy that you exude for this and this, you know, can do it. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to encourage people here, um, that if your questions didn't get answered, you know, that's the community, you know, please pop yes. those questions in the community. Jen is one of those. I'm there. And, and you just put topic, morning basket, or any of the other topics under homeschool guidance, anything you have questions about, 
let us, we're there to support each other. We really are. I, I think mostly it's homeschooling women. There are homeschooling dads, but I know that women are created to relate. Um, you know, again, I would have loved to sit with a cup of coffee with you today. <laughs> In yes. a way, I felt yes. like we kind of yes. did that. Great. Yes. So if you don't mind, I'm going to invite everybody into prayer. I'm just going to end here with a prayer and then we'll call it a day. Yes. So let us begin in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is St. Teresa's bookmark prayer. Let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Nothing is wanting to him who possesses God. God alone suffices. Bless you, all you families. Uh, bless you. You are in our hearts and in our prayers. We ask all these things in your son's name, Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. Thank you, you all. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.